0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to leg compartment syndrome and adult hip dysplasia, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with leg compartment syndrome and the first question reads, a 10-year-old girl suffers a displaced tibia fracture Initial numbness over the dorsum of the foot resolved following an anatomic close reduction and placement in a long-leg cast performed in the emergency room. The cast was placed with the ankle dorsiflexed just above neutral to prevent equinus contracture, and then the cast and padding was adequately bivalved. Overnight, the patient began experiencing recurrent numbness and paresthesias in her exposed toes and a slight increase in her pain at the fracture site. Your best next step would be And the choices are 1. Repeat closed reduction under conscious sedation, 2. Selective compartment fasciotomies, 3. External fixation and compartment monitoring, 4. Four compartment fasciotomies with fracture fixation done emergently, and 5. Modify the cast to reposition the ankle into slight plantar flexion. So circumferential casting with the ankle dorsiflexed can cause increased intracompartmental pressures in the leg. However, this patient's cast has been adequately bivalved during the initial cast placement. Therefore, the next best step is cast modification to allow the ankle to assume an angle between neutral and 30 degrees of plantar flexion and further reducing the compartment pressure. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Modify the cast to reposition the ankle into slight plantar flexion. Tibia fractures are one of the many common underlying etiologies for the development of compartment syndrome in the leg. Fracture reduction as well as eliminating circumferential dressings are important early preventative steps to take. Bivalving casts, including splitting the cast padding, is often indicated in fractures of long bones that are treated with initial casting. While casting patients in a plantigrade or dorsiflex position reduces the risk of equinus contractures and holds the ankle mortis reduced, dorsiflexing the ankle has been shown to increase the intracompartmental pressures throughout the leg compartments. Weiner et al. placed pressure monitors into the anterior and deep posterior compartments in healthy volunteers to measure the effects of casting on compartment pressures. They found that the intramuscular pressures were lowest with the ankle position between plantigrade and a resting plantar flexion position that is between 0 to 37 degrees and that bivalving the cast reduced the pressure 33 to 47 percent. Moving on to the next question, an 18-year-old girl sustains a closed tibial fracture when she's pinned between the bumpers of two cars. You suspect that she has compartment syndrome and you prepare her for fasciotomies in the operating room. Which of the following muscles is not released by a standard medial-sided incision? And the choices are one, tibialis posterior, two, extensor hallucis longus, three, soleus, four, flexor digitorum longus, and five, popliteus. So the tibialis posterior, flexor digitorum longus, and popliteus are all located in the deep posterior compartment. The soleus is in the superficial posterior compartment. All are easily released through a medial surgical approach. The extensor hallucis longus is located in the anterior compartment and therefore cannot be released through a medial sided incision. So the correct answer to this question is two extensor hallucis longus. Moving on to the next question, A 24-year-old woman was struck by a minivan in a parking lot and sustained a closed segmental tibia fracture that was treated with an intramedullary nail the following morning. Follow-up examinations reveal a slowly progressive clawing of all five toes, a progressive equinovirus contracture, and the patient is unable to perform a single heel rise on the affected limb. At one year after surgery, the patient now has a 10-degree aquinas contracture that is not relieved with knee flexion. Treatment should now consist of, and the choices are one, physical therapy and bracing, two, reassurance that these problems will resolve with time, three, posterior capsule release, Achilles tendon lengthening, and excision of the scarred muscle and tendon in the leg and foot, 4. Achilles tendon lengthening and flexor digitorum longus and flexor hallucis longus tenotomies at the individual digits with transfer of the posterior tibial tendon to the dorsum of the foot. And 5. Flexor digitorum longus and flexor hallucis longus tenotomies at the individual digits with midfoot capsular release and hallux interphalangeal fusion. So this is an example of a missed deep posterior compartment syndrome that typically presents six months after the injury with progressive clawing due to necrosis, scarring, and contracture of the posterior tibial tendon, flexor digitorum longus, and flexor hallucis longus. Treatment consists of debridement of necrotic muscle and scar tissue with corresponding tendon excision. After debridement and posterior capsule release, if the equinus is relieved with knee flexion, a gastrocnemius slide may be performed. Otherwise, the lengthening should be at the level of the Achilles tendon. Bracing will not address the claw toes. So the correct answer to this question is 3, posterior capsule release, Achilles tendon lengthening, and excision of the scarred muscle and tendon in the leg and foot. Moving on to the next question, A 24-year-old man involved in a motorcycle accident sustained multiple injuries, including a closed tibia fracture, liver laceration, and blunt chest trauma. He has a blood pressure of 80 over 50 millimeters of mercury, a pulse of 130, and respirations of 20. He is intubated and being resuscitated. The calf is very swollen with compartment pressures. The anterior compartment measures 25 millimeters of mercury, the lateral measures 24 millimeters of mercury, Deep posterior measures 21 millimeters of mercury, and the superficial posterior measures 21 millimeters of mercury. What is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Observation, 2. Splinting and limb elevation above the heart, 3. Splinting and no limb elevation, 4. Immediate fasciotomy, and 5. Continuous pressure monitoring with an indwelling catheter. So a compartment syndrome is best diagnosed with a delta P, that is diastolic pressure minus the compartment pressure of less than or equal to 30 millimeters of mercury. This patient is hypotensive and the delta P's are all less than 30 millimeters of mercury. Emergent fasciotomy is the preferred treatment. Moving on to the next question. A patient has a tibial shaft fracture and is suspected of having compartment syndrome involving the deep posterior compartment. Associated signs and symptoms would include paresthesias over the And the choices are 1, dorsum of the foot and pain with passive toe flexion. 2, dorsum of the foot and pain with passive toe extension. 3, plantar foot and pain with passive toe flexion. 4, plantar foot and pain with passive toe extension. And 5, entire foot and pain with active toe extension. So a compartment syndrome of the deep posterior compartment causes symptoms related to structures running through that compartment. The deep posterior compartment includes the tibialis posterior, flexor hallucis longus, flexor digitorum longus, popliteus muscle, as well as the posterior tibial artery and the tibial nerve. Elevated pressures in this compartment would cause paresthesias in the distribution of the tibial nerve, that is the plantar aspect of the foot, and would cause associated pain with passive stretch of the muscles in the compartment, such as great toe extension. So the correct answer to this question is four, plantar foot and pain with passive toe extension. Moving on to the next question, A 35-year-old male sustains a closed tibial shaft fracture after falling from 12 feet. Which of the following measurements would be concerning for an evolving compartment syndrome? And the choices are one, intraoperative anterior compartment measurement of 29 with preoperative diastolic pressure of 58. Two, preoperative anterior compartment measurement of 25 with preoperative diastolic pressure of 60. Three, intraoperative anterior compartment measurement of 25 with intraoperative diastolic pressure of 54. 4. Intraoperative anterior compartment measurement of 28, with intraoperative diastolic pressure of 72. And 5. Preoperative anterior compartment measurement of 22, with a mean arterial pressure of 70. So a delta P that is the diastolic blood pressure minus the compartment pressure measurement of less than 30 millimeters of mercury is an indication for fasciotomies with the caveat that the diastolic pressure is measured either pre- or post-operatively. Given the poor outcomes associated with missed compartment syndromes, it is important to obtain both clinical and objective data when determining if a patient needs fasciotomies. Determining if a patient needs fasciotomies in the operating room while a patient is under anesthesia is complicated by the fact that obtaining a clinical exam is impossible and that the diastolic blood pressure may be falsely decreased compared to normal pre- or postoperative measurements. Currently, it is recommended that intraoperative compartment pressures be compared to preoperative diastolic blood pressures with a delta P of less than 30 indicating the need for fasciotomies. Cucker et al. review the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative diastolic blood pressure in 242 patients with a tibia fracture treated operatively. They found the mean diastolic blood pressure was 18 points lower in the operating room compared to the preoperative measurement. In addition, they found the difference between preoperative and postoperative diastolic blood pressures to be within two points, indicating the decrease seen intraoperatively is likely a spurious value induced by anesthetic. McQueen and Court Brown prospectively review 116 patients with tibia fractures that had continuous monitoring of their anterior compartment for 24 hours. They found that using an absolute pressure of 30 millimeters of mercury would have resulted in 50 patients, or 43%, treated with unnecessary fasciotomies. They conclude using a differential pressure of 30 millimeters of mercury is a more reliable indicator of compartment syndrome. But the correct answer to this question Asking what measurement would be concerning for revolving compartment syndrome in a 35-year-old male sustaining a closed tibial fracture after falling from 12 feet is one intraoperative anterior compartment measurement of 29 with a preoperative diastolic pressure of 58. Moving on to the next question. Increasing the oxygen gradient for diffusion is the mechanism of action for which of the following methods of treatment of lower extremity trauma? And the choices are one, open fasciotomy, Two, percutaneous fasciotomy, three, high dose anti inflammatories, four, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and five, negative pressure wound therapy. So, hyperbaric oxygen therapy allows patients to breathe 100% oxygen in a chamber under conditions of increased barometric pressure. The tremendous partial pressure of oxygen supports gas diffusion for a much greater distance than under normal conditions, thus delivering oxygen to relatively ischemic and hypoxic tissues. Trauma-related indications for hyperbaric oxygen therapy include carbon monoxide intoxication, gas gangrene, crush injury, compartment syndrome, necrotizing fasciitis, treatment of chronic osteomyelitis, support of grafts and flaps, as well as burns. Contraindications relate to issues of gas exchange, oxygen sensitivity, and technical safety. So the correct answer to this question is four, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Moving on to the next question, Which of the following structures is at risk during proximal dissection of a single lateral perifibular approach for compartment syndrome of the leg? And the choices are 1, common perineal nerve, 2, superficial perineal nerve, 3, deep perineal nerve, 4, anterior tibial artery, and 5, lateral inferior genicular artery. So the perifibular approach is carried out through a straight lateral incision beginning just posterior and parallel to the fibula from the fibular head to the tip of the lateral malleolus. At the proximal end of the incision, the common perineal nerve must be identified and protected. Elevation of the soleus off the posterior fibula ensures proper deep compartment release. The anterior edge of the incision is then retracted to expose the anterior and lateral compartments and at this point, care must be taken to avoid the superficial perineal nerve as it exits the fascia of the lateral compartment and runs anteriorly in the distal third of the leg. So the correct answer to this question is one common perineal nerve. Moving on to the next question. During a dual incision fasciotomy of the leg, the soleus is elevated from the tibia to allow access to which of the following compartments? And the choices are one, superficial posterior, two, deep posterior, three, lateral, four, anterior, and five, mobile wad. So the soleus is elevated slash released from the posterior tibia during the medial approach to allow access to the deep posterior compartment. Release of this compartment cannot be done without proper elevation of the soleus. The superficial posterior compartment mass is primarily located in the proximal half of the leg, while the deep posterior musculature is located in the distal two-thirds of the leg. So the correct answer to this question is two, deep posterior. Moving on to the next question, all of the following are true statements regarding compartment syndrome in the pediatric patient except, and the choices are one, increasing analgesic requirement is an important indicator for the diagnosis of compartment syndrome in children. Two, duration of compartment syndrome prior to treatment is the most important variable in determining the outcome. Three, mechanism of injury is the best predictor of compartment syndrome development. 4. Traditional hallmarks of adult compartment syndrome may be more challenging to detect in pediatric compartment syndrome. And 5. Careful patient positioning and the use of prophylactic fasciotomy are methods of preventing compartment syndrome. So compartment syndrome can often be difficult to diagnose in the pediatric patient. Mechanism of injury is not the best predictor of compartment syndrome development or diagnosis in pediatric patients. So the correct answer to this question is 3 mechanism of injury is the best predictor of compartment syndrome development is an incorrect statement in this accept question. It is more important to note that functional outcome following compartment syndrome in patients is inversely related to the duration of elevated tissue pressures before surgical fasciotomy. Level 4 evidence by Bay et al. reviewed 33 children with compartment syndrome. They found that all 10 compartment syndrome patients that had access to nurse or patient-controlled analgesia during their initial evaluation demonstrated an increasing requirement for pain medication. Madsen et al. reviewed 24 children with compartment syndrome with the most common causes being fracture, vascular injury, and tibial osteotomy. The study concluded that it is imperative that a compartment syndrome be identified and treated as promptly as possible. Moving on to the next question. A 28-year-old male sustains a mid-shaft fibula fracture after being kicked during a karate tournament and develops compartment syndrome isolated to the lateral compartment of his leg. If left untreated, which of the following sensory or motor deficits would be expected? And the choices are 1. Decreased sensation on the dorsum of his foot involving the hallux, third and fourth toes. 2. Inability to plantar flex the ankle. 3. Decreased sensation on the dorsum of his foot involving the first web space. 4. Instability to dorsiflex the ankle. And 5. Inability to abduct his toes. So the clinical vignette describes a scenario of isolated compartment syndrome in the lateral compartment of the leg. The only nervous structure residing in the lateral compartment is the superficial perineal nerve. In compartment syndrome of the lateral leg compartment, Failure of prompt surgical fasciotomy would present as a sensory deficit of the superficial perineal nerve, presenting as numbness on the dorsum of his foot involving the hallux, third, and fourth toes. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Decreased sensation on the dorsum of his foot involving the hallux, third, and fourth toes. Mattson et al. discussed the poor results which can be a cause of late diagnosis and surgical decompression. They recommended compartment monitoring in equivocal cases as well as release of all four leg compartments when facing leg compartment syndrome. Olson et al. provide a review of compartment syndrome for the lower extremity. They discuss a variety of injuries and medical conditions that may initiate acute compartment syndrome, including fractures, bleeding disorders, and other trauma. Although the diagnosis is primarily a clinical one, they also recommend supplementation with compartment pressure measurements in equivocal cases. Moving on to the next question, an 11-year-old child has a tibia fibula fracture following a fall from a swing. The fracture is reduced and placed in a long leg splint in the emergency room. What is considered the earliest sign or symptom of a developing compartment syndrome of the leg? And the choices are 1. Pain out of proportion to injury, 2. Pale appearance of the foot, 3. Loss of the ability to move the toes, 4. Decreased sensation in the foot, and 5. Decreased pulses in the foot. So the reference by Willis et al. states, quote, the single most important symptom of impending compartment syndrome is pain out of proportion to the injury, end quote. This symptom requires a conscious patient. Most children requiring a reduction for a displaced upper or lower extremity fracture will become comfortable soon after the reduction has been completed. Children requiring frequent analgesia or complaining loudly about pain should be examined very carefully for possible compartment syndrome. The key wording in this question is earliest indicator. Pulselessness, paralysis, pallor, and paresthesias are all late indicators. The article by Willis also lists the most reliable signs of a developing compartment syndrome as severe pain with passive stretching of the involved compartment, pain with palpation of the involved compartment, and sensory disturbances. But the correct answer to this question is one, pain out of proportion to injury. Moving on to the next question, a 10-year-old girl is treated for a tibia fibula fracture with a long leg cast. The on-call resident is called to evaluate the patient for increasing pain medicine requirements and tingling in her foot. Examination of the cast reveals that the ankle has been immobilized in 10 degrees of dorsiflexion. What ankle position results in the safest compartment pressures in a casted lower leg? And the choices are 1. 40 to 40-50 degrees of plantar flexion, 2. 10-20 to 20 degrees of ankle dorsiflexion, 3. Neutral to 30 degrees of plantar flexion, 4. Neutral to 10 degrees of dorsiflexion, and 5. Ankle position has no effect on calf compartment pressure. So agitation, anxiety, and increasing analgesic requirements are the three A's of pediatric compartment syndrome. Weiner et al. measured intramuscular compartment pressure in the anterior and deep posterior compartments of the leg in seven healthy adults who had long leg casts placed. They found that in a casted leg, the intramuscular pressure in the anterior compartment was lowest with the ankle in neutral, and the deep posterior compartments was lowest when the ankle joint was in the resting position to approximately 37 degrees of plantar flexion. Based on this, they concluded that the safest ankle casting position regarding compartment pressure is between 0 and 37 degrees of plantar flexion. After the cast was bivalved, they noted a significant decrease in intramuscular pressure of 47% in the anterior compartment and of 33% in the deep posterior compartment. Constrictive casts and aberrant ankle positioning can exacerbate pain symptoms. Loosening of the cast by bivalving, spreading, and cutting underlying stockinette slash soft roll should always be the first step in management of possible compartment syndrome. But the correct answer to this question is three, The position of the ankle that results in the safest compartment pressures in a casted lower leg is 3, neutral to 30 degrees of plantar flexion. Moving on to the next question. Which clinical sign is the most sensitive for the diagnosis of compartment syndrome in a child with a supracondylar humerus fracture? And the choices are 1, pulselessness, 2, pallor, 3, paresthesia, 4, paralysis, and 5, increasing analgesia requirement. So although pain, pallor, paresthesia, paralysis, and pulselessness are all possible signs and symptoms of compartment syndrome in children with fractures, studies have shown increasing analgesia requirements is more sensitive. Bay et al. reviewed 36 cases of compartment syndrome in 33 pediatric patients. Approximately 75% of these patients developed compartment syndrome in the setting of fracture. They found pain, pallor, paresthesia, paralysis, and pulselessness were relatively unreliable signs and symptoms of compartment syndrome in these children. An increasing analgesia requirement in combination with other clinical signs was a more sensitive indicator of compartment syndrome. So the correct answer to this question is 5, increasing analgesia requirement. Whitesides et al. summarized the diagnosis and treatment of acute compartment syndrome. They emphasize the need for early diagnosis as muscles tolerate four hours of ischemia well, but by six hours the result is uncertain. After eight hours the damage is irreversible. They recommend fasciotomy be performed when tissue pressures rise past twenty millimeters of mercury below the diastolic pressure. Moving on to the next question. A 27-year-old man now reports dorsiflexion and inversion weakness after an automobile collision six months ago in which compartment syndrome developed isolated to the anterior and deep posterior compartments. Examination reveals the development of a progressive cavovarus deformity, but the ankle and hind foot remain flexible. In addition to Achilles lengthening, which of the following procedures is most likely to improve the motor balance of his foot and ankle? And the choices are 1. Anterior tibialis tendon transferred to the dorsolateral midfoot, 2. Posterior tibialis tendon transferred to the dorsolateral midfoot, 3. Peroneus longus tendon transferred to the dorsolateral midfoot, 4. Peroneus brevis tendon transfers to the dorsolateral midfoot, and 5. flexor hallucis longus tendon transferred to the peroneus brevis. So compartment syndrome of the anterior and deep posterior compartments results in anterior tibialis and posterior tibialis tendon weakness, respectively. Furthermore, the long flexors to the hallux and lesser toes will be weak as well. The intact peroneus longus overpowers the weak anterior tibialis tendon, resulting in plantar flexion of the first metatarsal, cavus, and hindfoot varus. Therefore, transferring the peroneus longus to the dorsolateral midfoot reduces the first metatarsal plantar flexion torque and possibly augments ankle dorsiflexion torque. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Peroneus longus tendon transfer to the dorsolateral midfoot. And moving on to the final question for this topic, a 25-year-old woman with a healed proximal tibiofibular fracture treated with an intramedullary nail two years ago is currently wearing an ankle foot orthosis and reports a persistent foot drop. She's unhappy with the AFO and has not seen any functional improvements despite months of physical therapy. Serial electromyograms show no recent change over the past year. Examination and EMG findings are consistent with the tibialis anterior 1 out of 5, extensor hallucis longus 2 out of 5, extensor digitorum longus 2 out of 5, posterior tibial tendon 5 out of 5, peroneals 3 out of 5, flexor hallucis longus 5 out of 5, and gastroxoleus 5 out of 5. No discrete nerve lesion was identified. The patient has a flexible equinovarus contracture. What is the most appropriate management? And the choices are 1. Continued AFO bracing and therapy, 2. Ankle fusion, 3. Expiration and release of the common peroneal nerve, 4. Transfer of the posterior tibialis tendon through the interosseous membrane with attachment to the tibialis anterior and peroneus tertius above the level of the ankle, debridement of the anterior compartment, and Achilles tendon lengthening, and 5. Transfer of the peroneus longus to the dorsum of the foot and Achilles tendon lengthening. So this pattern of injury is consistent with an unrecognized compartment syndrome of the anterior and lateral compartments. Transfer of the posterior tibialis tendon through a long incision in the interosseous membrane corrects the foot drop deformity and allows adequate dorsiflexion provided that the tendon to be transferred has a strength of 5 out of 5. Muscles slash tendons typically lose one grade of strength after transfer. Transfer into the tendons at the level of the ankle prevents over-tensioning or pullout of a posterior tibialis tendon that is not long enough Debridement of the scarred muscle in the anterior compartment decreases the risk of scarring down to the tendon transfer. Transfer of the peroneus longus is not preferred, given its relative lack of strength and line of pull. Continued therapy and bracing are unlikely to lead to further improvement at two years after injury. An ankle fusion would correct the foot drop, but would not address the tendon imbalances between the tibialis anterior and the peroneus longus, and the posterior tibialis tendon and the peroneus brevis. And moving on to the final topic for this review session of adult hip dysplasia, the first question reads, A 25-year-old female presents with complaints of persistent left hip pain. A pelvic radiograph series demonstrates a lateral center edge angle of 16 degrees, a vertical center anterior margin angle of 18 degrees, a tannus angle of 15 degrees, a neck shaft angle of 132 degrees, and a femoral alpha angle of 38 degrees. Magnetic resonance arthrogram demonstrates a degenerative supralateral labral tear with no lesions of the articular cartilage. What is the most appropriate surgical intervention for this patient? And the choices are 1. Surgical hip dislocation with femoral acetabular osteoplasty and labral repair. 2. Proximal femoral osteotomy. 3. Salter inanimate osteotomy. 4. Bernese periacetabular osteotomy. and 5. Total hip arthroplasty. So the patient presents with hip pain and radiographic signs of adult hip dysplasia. She would be best treated with a Bernese periacetabular osteotomy, making 4 the correct answer to this question. To quickly review, adult hip dysplasia is characterized by undercoverage of the femoral head, which leads to femoral acetabular pathomechanics that increase load to the supralateral acetabulum. These increased contact stresses cause degenerative labral disease, cartilage delamination, and progressive degenerative changes that lead ultimately to osteoarthritis. Early diagnosis of adult hip dysplasia in patients with maintained articular cartilage can benefit from reorienting periacetabular osteotomy to increase acetabular coverage of the femoral head, which normalizes contact stresses and has been shown to preserve the hip. In 1988, Gans et al. first described the reorienting periacetabular osteotomy. The procedure was performed through a Smith-Peterson approach and utilized osteotomies of the ischium, pubic ramus, supraacetabular ilium, and the quadrilateral plate. They described this osteotomy as advantageous because it could be performed through a single approach and achieve large corrections in morphology, including the option of medializing or lateralizing the acetabulum. Parvizi et al. performed a retrospective analysis of 36 hips with a diagnosis of degenerative labral tears in the setting of developmental dysplasia of the hip who underwent arthroscopic labral debridement. The authors reported that all patients had improved functional scores at 6 weeks postoperatively, however the scores declined by 2 years postoperatively, and in many, they identified accelerated hip osteoarthritis. 16 of their patients required further open surgery, including three who underwent total hip arthroplasty. The authors concluded that arthroscopic labral debridement in the setting of DDH without correction of the underlying morphological abnormalities is likely to fail. Stepaker, et al., reported a 19-year follow-up of the first 63 patients to undergo periacetabular osteotomy. They reported that 60% of the hips remained preserved at final follow-up. For the 40% who failed, they found six factors that predicted a poor outcome. A young age at surgery, preoperative merle diabygne and Postel score, positive anterior impingement test, limp, osteoarthrosis grade, and postoperative extrusion index. The merle diabygne and Postel scores are validated instruments that measure pre- and postoperative pain, gait, and mobility. They concluded that periacetabular osteotomy was an effective technique for select patients with good results at least 19 years after surgery. And moving on to the final question for this topic, patients with hip dysplasia have a series of anatomic abnormalities that most commonly include which of the following? And the choices are 1. Shallow, medialized acetabulum that is deficient anteriorly and superiorly. 2. Large contact area between the femoral head and acetabulum three, large femoral head with long femoral neck, four, excessive femoral neck, antiversion, and a posterior greater trochanter, and five, decreased neck shaft angle. So patients with developmental dysplasia of the hip share a common pattern of anatomic abnormalities, including an acetabulum that is shallow, lateralized, antiverted, and deficient anteriorly and superiorly. On the femoral side, the head is usually small, the neck is short and antiverted with a posteriorly placed trochanter and the femoral canal is small. The neck shaft angle is typically increased. The contact area of the femoral head and acetabulum is typically decreased. So the correct answer to this question is four, excessive femoral neck antiversion and a posterior greater trochanter. That's all for this question review session about leg compartment syndrome and adult hip dysplasia. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.